Kyle. Thanks so much for joining Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta. And today we welcome Jonah Cunningham, and he is the president and CEO of NACBID and the executive director of NARM. And Jonah, those are very long um, names of the organizations. So why don't we open up and let you tell us a little bit about those two organizations and very shortly what they each do, because I know there's a huge amount of work that you're doing on both. Yeah, so NACBID is the National Association of County Behavioral Health and Developmental Disability Directors. Thank goodness we have that acronym. But basically, we represent the two dozen states that have a county-based behavioral health or intellectual and developmental disability uh, system to provide community-based care on the local level. Now, that was founded in 1989, so we have a long history of doing this work and advocating for them. The other organization, NARM, is the National Association for Rural Mental Health, and we represent policymakers, researchers, advocates, students, really anyone that's interested and wants to promote the accessibility and acceptability of mental health in rural settings. And that was founded in 1977, and we have a quarterly journal and an annual conference that's coming up this fall. One or maybe one or two things that you can tell us that you're working on that are incredibly important. You mentioned to us in the pre-interview 988 and the development of that. What are some of those things that are at the top of your mind right now for the work that you're doing and advocating? So behavioral health in general is under a, a huge systems transformation. Um, part of it's COVID, the increase for demand, and some of it predates COVID. Uh, you mentioned 988. So prior to COVID, uh, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-8255, there was a bill passed in Congress to establish a three-digit number, which later became 988, and that's set to launch in July. But this number not only replaces the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, but has the expanded role for behavioral health crisis. So substance use, individuals with serious mental illness, and with the goal of diverting them from the criminal justice system into care. Jonah, when something like that happens, I guess I don't even think about it, right? You don't realize what's happening behind the scenes. So it's amazing to know that this, this is what your organization is doing. Does this come with then additional funding to make sure that people find out about it, uh, public service messaging and such? How, how does that part of it happen, the education awareness campaigns? So it's it's been, a, I'll, I usually term it field of dreaming uh, policy making. So they, they did the 988, they passed the bill, they set the deadline for July of this year. Um, this is the, the funding they're, they're rolling out. They just released a, a couple hundred million a month ago to help really invest in that lifeline. Um, they've also allowed for states to do user fees, but they're kind of scrambling to get that system in order before really advertising it. The calls will be diverted. People call 988 or the, 18, or the uh, regular suicide prevention lifeline number. They'll be diverted to the same call centers. But really, we're trying to develop that whole crisis continuum. So it's not just the call centers, it's the mobile crisis response. So someone to go to where an individual is in crisis, and then also developing somewhere safe to go. So mobile uh, stabilization center, hospitals, um, a certified community behavioral health clinic or CCBHC, but really trying to invest in all of those before the PSAs. 
Right. And you're trying to invest in all of those in every state, in every region, because that's got to be just like a profoundly overwhelming, uh, right? Like, how do you figure out where to invest? It's difficult where it, it really is going to be a patchwork. Um, different communities have different infrastructures. Um, they might have robust um, robust funding, or they might also have certain obstacles. Like it's going to look different in Rhode Island versus Texas. Um, there are rural issues um, where it could take a couple hours um, to, to reach somebody that's in crisis. So then you have to figure out unique ways uh, to really address those challenges. Um, for example, uh, in some tribal areas in Alaska, they've done behavioral health aids, sort of community health workers to act as that kind of first responder um, and, hope, and connect them to care if needed, but they're embedded in the community. So there are some solutions that are popping up out of necessity, um, but these challenges are really, uh, really widespread. And I should mention too, with the Lifeline, it's a kind of a centralized federal system, but nationwide, there are over 800 crisis call centers, many of them county-based. So integrating them, um, connecting not only each, uh, not only call centers to the mobile crisis response, but call centers, crisis response, and then care and connecting them and connecting those systems. So your information sharing, you're getting the most robust uh, response possible. It's going to be a lift. Whenever you're implementing something like this that has incredible potential to once fully up and running to transform the way that people are seeking mental health care and give them an immediate, easy way to reach for help. How do you help everybody sort of get on that same page? Because it has to be an incredible effort to try to get everybody to do the same thing. But ultimately, that's kind of what has to happen to make it work, right? Yeah, it, it, it's going to take a village. And there's been a lot of collaboration here in D.C. There's uh, the Mental Health Liaison Group, which is I, I jokingly refer to, and I shouldn't say this, but the alphabet soup of mental health groups, NACBID, NARM, but also provider groups like the American Psychological and Psychiatric Association, um, the National Council. You also have advocates too, like the National Alliance for Mental Illness. Um, you have Mental Health America representing family members and people with lived experience. And we're all huddling together. NAMI has really led the charge um, on doing Crisis Now uh, and doing different, uh, holding different forums for people to talk and to share resources. But that's national. That's really focused on trying to joint policy make and trying to advocate here federally. Now, nationally, locally, it's really kind of a patchwork. Maybe your maybe your county has a um, a NAMI board a chapter. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it has a strong county based system. Maybe it doesn't. What I've done for my organization is that we've done uh, what I term candid conversations. So we. Uh, set up a, a dialogue on a specific issue, have a few guiding questions, but really allow for, for my members to connect across state lines since we represent, you know, California, Texas, Michigan, Utah, New Jersey, very Virginia, very different areas with very different concerns. And the problem solving there might look a lot different, but there could be lessons to take from it. Uh, we hope to build this community of learning, but also a community of support where this we know this work is difficult because on one hand, you see the promise of 988, 
But on the other hand, you see the challenges and you're, and I, for one, I'll say, speak personally, terrified that an individual is in crisis, they call, they get a horrible uh, experience and they never call again, they never seek help again. And that's exactly what we don't wanna happen. So we're really trying to work with partners here and also nationwide and also develop our own community of learning. How much of that, Jonah, when, as you mentioned, you're, you're trying to get policy change driven and then there's education related to that. Uh, but are there funds that also that you're trying to procure to impact the, uh, the care delivery itself? Is that part of the process as well? Definitely, definitely. And there's various pots of money and with COVID flexibilities as well with telehealth allowing for uh, more accessibility for behavioral health services. Um, in particular, we're really supportive of the what's called the CCBHCs, the, the Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinics. Again, I apologize for all the acronyms here, um, but this is a system with a prospective payment, uh, which really encapsulates the cost for behavioral health. Oftentimes, the reimbursement rates have been so low, so you have a lot of providers that are out of network or they're barely getting by on, on, on small margins and eventually have to close on a downturn year. So there's two different pots of money for CCBHCs. The first is the Medicaid program I mentioned with the prospective payment. And then there's also a federal grant program to help plan, to help do uh, systems evaluation and try to get that certification as a CCBHC to provide all the services that are under that, under that uh, umbrella. So we advocate for the grant funding and also the uh, the Medicaid expansion of that Medicaid demonstration program, which is in 10 states, I believe. Um, so that's one piece. Also more funding for the lifeline for the crisis response. Um, in the most recent COVID package, there was a, a, the American Rescue Plan Act, ARPA, another acronym. There was a, a provision in Medicaid that would allow for what, what we call an 85% FMAP, or the federal government would pay 85% of the cost for a mobile crisis response team. And of course, there's certain qualifications, but it's a five-year opportunity to really help and kind of you know goes hand in hand with that 988 uh, transition. So we we you know advocated for that, we supported that. And also it's not beyond me to realize that. That, that funding in particular, and also with the CCBHCs, we hope not to hit a, a deadline or the end of the road. We wanna make sure it's sustainable so we don't have to go through these boom and bust cycles that our friends in public health have undergone where they've got the Ebola money, then they'd spend it down and then COVID comes and they're trying to scramble and get as much as possible to get their systems on board. Wow, it, it's it's just um, mind-boggling to actually contemplate all of this, Jonah. And and I'm trying to, as I was telling you in our pre-interview, uh, because we come at it from such different perspectives as a physician or a consultant, and Stephanie from all her wealth of experience on the patient advocacy side. I mean, usually, we're working as a consultants with healthcare organizations, where it, it you know as complex as their challenges are. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the bounds seem to be also somewhat well-defined in terms of how do we know something is working or how do we not, uh, how can we measure improvement? Uh, you're starting with some, some sense of uh, making sure that you can meet your, uh, your revenues, can meet your expenses, and that you have some quality goals. 
But for something like what you're working on at the highest level, you know, at the federal and state and county level, and while while an issue like this is is full on becoming more and more of a crisis, how do you even get your hands around what is working? Now, how do you know that it's working? That you know what you're what you're trying to drive forward to is actually making a difference. Uh, maybe you can share some thoughts with us around that. I mean, it, it's it's difficult, right? Where sometimes it takes years down the line to do a proper evaluation of a program. Um, but a few tools or tricks that I've done is trying to identify a local program and see if we could scale it or allow for certain flexibilities. Uh, one thing I've heard, especially from a lot of my, my colleagues in NARM, is with evidence-based practices, you know, the EBPs that are often the foundation for certain grants, you have to do these activities. But in rural areas, it might not make sense. Sometimes you might not have all the resources or all the personnel or all the funding to, to do that, but you might have a practice-based practice -based evidence. Um, I'm butchering that, but uh, really you demonstrate that, this, that your approach works even without say, uh, one personnel or you know, creatively braiding and blending funds. So either scaling up existing ones, trying to allow flexibility for others, and then just trying to figure out what the best possible outcome could be given certain constraints, whether it's funding or the political moment. Um, you know, there's the, the joke is about how the sausage, you don't want to see how the sausage is made, and they refer to legislation like that. Um, sometimes it rings true. Uh, for a lot of other policies for behavioral health, not so much, I should say. Um, but it's really difficult to do that. Um, I also frequent uh, GAO, the G uh, Government Accountability Office. They do a lot of reports and oversight on different uh, grant programs. And they're, they're really helpful in kind of envisioning where we've gone and where we want to go um, when it comes to handling of funds or um, existing uh, authorities and things like that. You've mentioned multiple times in this interview that there are so, so many different systems and processes in place. And so what are some of the considerations that you may have between dealing with a rural area and a more metro area? Because I would imagine you would have some additional differences and things in terms of stigma, especially a smaller community where everybody may know each other. So what are the barriers that those people may be, uh, may be experiencing to try to get care that you may be experiencing and the people you're working with to try to implement care because of that resistance? I mean, they're very different considerations, right? Rural and urban. Um, when it comes to, to rural, I think they've benefited a lot with telehealth, the expansion of telehealth with COVID, um, which allows for people to get care in their home. They don't have to worry if they go to the local clinic and someone sees their car and there's a certain stigma attached to it. Um, so that's a huge piece. However, there's still huge swaths of the country without broadband. Uh, so there's another issue. Or there's also the a growing number of rural hospitals that have closed, or even rural pharmacies as well, if you have to go get some medication. So there's a lot of headwinds there. I try to think about it um, not only from a deficit perspective, but also from an opportunity perspective, where 
these communities are, you know, resilient. They're, you know, they're oftentimes have strong bonds amongst different community members. So perhaps there are opportunities to do um, you know, mental health first aid training. So people at least, you know, can fight the stigma and they know they, uh, they know the warning signs. Sometimes we fear what we don't know. So sometimes that education helps. Uh, there's also a push for, you know, I mentioned community health workers earlier or behavioral health aides. Another term that's been thrown out is um, community initiated care. So having people trained up a little bit um, to then connect people to care, to recognize those warning signs and really be kind of that active participant in the community. Now, it, it different than metropolitan areas. With metropolitan areas, you know, especially in a lot of cities, you might have a lot of uh, clinicians available to you. However, they might not be, you know, there's different challenges that, that could rear its head. They might not be in network or they might have a long waiting list or, you know, um, so on and so forth. So trying to recognize, I think for me, how I approach is try to come at it from a, a strengths perspective you know, what makes rural areas strong? What makes metropolitan areas strong? And how can we make them stronger when facing these challenges? I think that maybe it's a little Pollyanna, but for me, I, I try to be respectful of those communities. You don't, no one wants to hear that everything's wrong in their, their backyard. They also wanna hear what, what they can do and what they can move forward. I love it. Actually, I was going in a different direction, but based on what you just said, in terms of go, building off of a strengths perspective, uh, one thing that I've also been been uh, leveraging and trying to learn more of myself is then how do you tie that to an opportunities perspective, which then helps open up your strengths. So I wonder if you want to comment a little bit on that. How do you help communities not only understand what they already have, but what could they leverage that they may not have leveraged already? Any kind of examples come to mind on that front? I'm a big policy guy. And I, I think people underestimate their voices when it comes to policymakers, not only you know, federally, but you know, their county executive, their, their city council member, their school board, you know, so on and so forth. There's so many different levers. And there are so few people that call, that raise their, their voices. So I think having that strength and seizing that strength that you have in a, in a democratic society to really advocate for your community, um, I think is very helpful. And one framework that I've found really helpful is head, heart, and feet. So reaching their head, you know, is it a logical appeal? Um, these are the issues, these are, you know, these reports, or this is the evidence for that you know, with a heart, it's, you know, emotional appeals. Is it right or wrong? Is this the values of our community? And then the most important piece is your feet. Telling that city council member, that mayor, that congressman, where to go, um, where you want them to go. Do you want them to support behavioral health? Do you want to be a resource? Do you want them to sign on to a bill or not to support a certain bill? Um, I think that's critical. And that, again, going to those strengths, educating yourself. Um, there's a, a number of resources. Um, one I'll, I'll highlight that I loved is uh, the Congressional Research Service, which is nonpartisan. And they have a lot of great explainers on the federal process in particular. So crs.gov. Uh, 
You have been working in mental health in one fashion or another for a long time. And I would love to know what drove you to this field and why it matters so much. So, so I'll be honest, it found me, but in hindsight, it always made sense. And I say that where when I first inherited the behavioral health policy portfolio, I was working for a congresswoman and um, a, a senior staffer left and they offered it to me. And I will, I will admit, I was terrified. I thought people were going to do trust falls and cry on my shoulder. And then when I got past that kind of distancing and that internalized stigma, I realized that, you know, my mom has lived with depression most of her life. Um, my brother is, uh, he was a part of the peer support program for his fire department. Um, I've had multiple friends who've lost loved ones to, to suicide. And you quickly realize that this is such a, a, a ubiquitous issue and such a critical issue, but we don't wanna talk about it. And, and especially you know, federally, for the longest time, there weren't those resources in it. So for me, it was feeling like I was fighting for, for, the, for the little guy, but also personally fighting for my mom to make sure that she got the services and care that she deserves or making sure that, you know, people like my, uh, my friend who lost his mother to, to suicide, that no one else has to feel that pain or to try to do the right thing. So for me, it's really easy to get motivated thinking about that. And, but also keeping in mind that it's a, a long process, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. So just keep, keep, you know, uh, to use my brother's term, keep chopping wood. Thank you so much, Jonah. I loved this conversation. You're doing so many great things and I love to hear about it. Thank you so much for being here and sharing. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate you being on, Jonah. And thank you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.